okay. I'm going to apologize in advance. I messed up. We had a tactical issue with the audio on my end of this interview. I am sorry for how it sounds, but this interview was too good to scrap. James Canal, investment realtor and owner of the Mogul Realty Group, he had a ton of great gold nuggets to share. We couldn't get away from talking about COVID-19 as much as we tried, but we also talked about his portfolio, a mixture of multifamily and suited houses and how he chooses those properties. Lastly, we talked about his mini vacations and the live well philosophy, which was inspired by Tim Ferriss' book, The 4-Hour Workweek. Alright, no more delays, here it is. James, thanks for coming on. It's my pleasure, Wayne. I've been looking forward to being on your podcast for a while. Oh, thanks, man. Um, kind of torn. I mean, we are, what's the date today? March 22nd when we're recording this. I feel like we should be talking about COVID-19, but it just keeps changing so rapidly that like, you know, if I release this in four weeks, who knows where the heck we're going to be? Are we going to be in bunkers? Are we all going to be like holding hands and singing Kumbaya? Like, where are we going to be? <laughs> I know it's a moving target. Every, every day, um, you know, I talk to my team because with the different news coming out from the different governments and banks, um, you really have to, you know, stick to some general principles and then mm -hmm. make, make minute decisions day by day. So, yeah, I mean, different strategies are going to apply. The strategy is like be adaptable, be flexible and keep a good positive headspace because you could put a whole bunch of effort into creating a plan that has a strategy only to find out that a factor outside of your control has changed the strategy the next day when you wake up. Yeah. So it's, it's a classic case of that old saying, you know, you can't control what happens. All you can control is your attitude and all you can control is how you react. Yeah. Yeah. And that'd be kind of cool. Like even if we did decide to talk about what's going on currently and how to react, it'd be like a cool like time capsule thing where we can look in four weeks and see like, Oh, James, no, James, don't do that. Stay inside, stay inside. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, I, you know, I, I just got like, I, I got back from traveling and I like kind of almost like sneaking under the garage door as it's closing, like cut the wire before I wasn't going to be allowed back in Canada. Um, yeah. I've been self quarantining. Um, again, we're doing a time capsule, so knock on wood, I'm at day six, no symptoms, no respiratory distress, no fever, but I might call you on Monday or Tuesday way to be like, uh, actually I've got it. Crap. <laughs> we don't know, man. We don't know. I mean, yeah, exactly. So without talking about it, you know, directly, because let's be honest, everyone's talking about it. And, and though it is a super important and serious, um, you know, thing that we got going on. I'd like to kind of get away from it and, and, and not let it um, distract us from, from you and your business and, and the yeah. things that you have to share. Um, so without going, you know, talking about it directly, you know, let's talk about what kind of opportunities do you think could come out of this? Well, the thing about this situation, Wayne, and the way that I've been really wrapping my head around it is the best way to define it is a, is it's a crisis um, mm -hmm. and it's an economic crisis. So while we've never dealt with a global pandemic before you know we've both been in real estate long enough that we have seen you know i've been through three economic crises and i think you've been at least as long as i've known you, you we've been through two together so you know i mean right. i i when the market crashed in 2008 you know that was a crisis when mm. oil turned in 2015 that was a crisis and even though it's it's not an oil shift it's not a market shift creating these economic circumstances um it's, you know, it's 5% different, maybe 10% because we can't go outside for a little while, but the other 90% yeah. of like thought processes, strategies, mindsets, business activities and opportunities are going to be very, very similar to what we've already seen in the past. So it's a great opportunity to let history be our teacher and um, do the things that, that made us successful and that helped us get through the last uh, periods of economic challenge. The nice mm -hmm. thing about being at Edmonton is, especially in Alberta, we're all resilient as all heck because we were already through, um, you know, a bit of a market slowdown and yeah. we've already been doing all the right things to do in the market slowdown. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, on a Canadian wide scale, um, especially compared to Vancouverites and Ontario and Toronto, Ontario people, 
Um, we've already developed the habits on how to be successful in a down market. So I think mm -hmm. on, a, on a Canada wide scale, um, you know, us Albertans have already been trained, steeled and hardened to what to do in a time like this and how to, how to get the opportunities flowing in our direction and how to make the best of it and how to be very, you know, successful, profitable and grow in a difficult time. So, you know, yeah. I mean, I'm actually like, I'm not looking forward to being cooped up at home for a couple of weeks, but mm -hmm. I know that, you know, myself, you know, yourself, our investor community here in Alberta, in terms of mindset and skill set, are better poised than most of the rest of the country to really rocket through this thing and come out on top. Mm -hmm. I think honestly, it's you know the people that who actually practice the good principles of real estate investing, the good techniques, you know, that having the reserve funds, having you know cash flow, um, they're going to be just fine. But the people who have been taking the extreme risks all this time, you know, negative cash flow, break even cash flow, or just buying for appreciation. Like he said, I mean, they're going to be the ones that are probably affected the most. I completely agree. And that's, that's what Edmonton has in its favor is that, you know, the, the key value proposition in Edmonton for the last five years has been, yeah, our market's down, but we cash flow. So mm -hmm. it, it insulates us from that market volatility because no matter what, we're paying down the mortgage and we're cash flowing. Um, but, you know, people who have been buying pre-sales in Vancouver, pre-sales in Toronto, who've been buying places that negatively cash flow under the assumption that they're going to have unfettered market growth, um, I think those are the people that are going to uh, have... <laughs> I was I'm like, I just thought to myself, I don't want to scare anybody, but I think those are the people that are going to be running into a little bit more trouble. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we know in the short term that maybe we're going to have some tenants that are going to have trouble paying the rent because of layoffs and all that. That's very, very short term pain, I think. Um, but the fundamentals of, you know, Edmonton where rent is higher than carrying costs equals cash flow. Um, if anything, it's going to make us more appealing. So it, and the thing is like, that's our, that's been the mindset, you know, I, you're right that if people are focused on that business fundamental as opposed to a market fundamental, mm -hmm. now's the time to, to focus more on strengthening business fundamentals. Um, and when I say business fundamentals, I just mean the business of like revenue being higher than expense and protecting yeah. that revenue by being a great landlord, great customer service, providing an awesome product slash service, which is a, you know, a, a nice, clean, well-maintained place to live. Um, those, are the business, those are the business fundamentals that are going to carry us through. And, those are the business fundamentals that have been separating the more successful people from the people that have been struggling here in Edmonton for the last five years. You know, I mean, yeah. it's, it's a new situation with the virus, but it's, you know, I hate to say it, but it's old news in terms of strategy. Like we've got this down pat at Edmonton. This is our, this is our jam. So, you know, yeah. it's time, it's time for Alberta to shine. And I think that, um, I think that even though, I mean, let's, let's, let's call a spade a spade. It's a scary time. Um, mm -hmm. You know, like there, there's, there's fear involved. There's anxiety involved. There's a lot of emotions involved, but you know, as long as, as long as you're doing all the right self care stuff, you're managing your mental health, the general you, whoever's listening, um, the situation will change back and, you know, use that, use that brain power, use that force power to stay focused on the, the business fundamentals that make sense to come out the other side of this thing with, uh, you know, as unscathed as possible. Mm -hmm. And then, and then as long as you, uh, as long as you're not, as long as you're not out of the game, the, the opportunities are just going to start popping up left, right, and center. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you've obviously been through a couple dips, you know, with the market in the past. So what's your investment portfolio made up of that you've yeah. been able to write it in? Yeah. You know what? Just to, just to tell a little bit of that story. So I, I started my real estate course in 2007 when oil was $135 a barrel. Mm -hmm. And when I was handed my shiny new real estate license from the Alberta Real Estate Association in October, oil was $55 a barrel. So all my friends, all my family, all my, you know, the, the, the support network in my life, everybody's freaking out for me because they're saying, oh my gosh, the real estate market is about to implode. This is the worst possible time to become a realtor. That's mm -hmm. number one. Number two. When I, I, I mean, we might talk about this later, but I, I went on a, um, a mini retirement. I lived in Whistler for six months. When yeah. I left for Whistler, oil was over $100 a barrel. When I came back from Whistler, oil was about $35 a barrel. That was in 2015. Yeah. So I've had, 
you know, I've had, I've been through two of them and, uh, you know, I mean, I've thrived through both of them because the, the opportunities don't go away. They just change. And, you know, that's, that's the, that's the cool thing about real estate. And that's what keeps it interesting is the market will ebb and flow. Now, it ebb, it, the nice thing is it ebbs and flows slowly. So it's, you know, it's not like you have to turn on a dime, you know, like the market in Edmonton will ebb and flow over about a five to 10 year period. So you can, you have time to just adapt, roll with the tides and make sure that your strategy aligns with the market reality. Um, and that's, you know, that's what we're going to be dealing with. It's, it's going to be an interesting one because Edmonton was right at that point of heading back through recovery into a strong market. So I think what this is going to do is just flatten it out and we're going to have a continuation of the slow period um, mm -hmm. before we round the corner into recovery. So, you know, it's, I think it's once, once the quarantine period ends and we're allowed to go back out in public again, it's going to be, it's actually going to be very, I think, status quo for, for most investors in Alberta, because it's going to be more of what we had. We were all super optimistic for market growth, but I think it's mm -hmm. like, you know what, just batten down the hatches and keep, keep on keeping on because it's going to be, it's going to be what we've already been used to for the past three or four years. Yeah. Yeah. We'll survive. So, oh, so, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I, I, so you asked me a question. You said, what is my portfolio made up? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, so I've got, a, I've got a pretty good mix. I've got multifamily buildings. I've got a lot of basement suited houses. One of the things that I've been shifting away from very early on in my career, um, I did the, uh, the, the rookie investors fallacy of going towards the cheapest possible properties with the highest possible prop with the highest possible cash flow on paper. Yeah. So, you know, I, I own and owned a bunch of illegally basement suited houses in the Alberta Avenue area and like on the North side, close to 127th street. So, yeah. you know, D plus C minus neighborhoods, um, the houses were cheap and I thought, Oh, if it's cheap, it's a good buy. And, um, you know, one of the things I've been doing to reposition my portfolio is one at a time selling off those houses and then replacing them with kind of brand new inventory so that I've got a little bit of newer, low maintenance stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so I've actually, I've picked up quite a few skinny houses in Edmonton with uh, basement suites, brand new. Um, really like them. You know, the cash flow on paper isn't as high, but the overall time commitment to manage them is a lot lower, which is really in alignment with what my priorities are right now. Yeah, and it's obviously changing your tenant profile as well, which is probably a lot less headache. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so do you, do you manage uh, a lot of your own properties or do you have property managers? Well, I've, I've got a bit of a rule of thumb that I like to stick to where I, I will utilize a tenant placement service. I'll get the tenant placed and then I'll self-management until I hit what I call, I just call it the three strike rule. If the tenant calls me, the third time a tenant calls me with a complaint, concern, maintenance request, the third time they're anything I, I like if they're late on rent, anytime I have to deal with them, even if it's not necessarily like a negative experience, um, third strike handed over to a property manager, because at that point, you know, I've reached my personal threshold of the property being higher maintenance versus lower maintenance. And right. I want the higher maintenance properties to go to the property management company that I like to use. But, you know, I've got some properties where the rent shows up in my account on the first and that's it. You know, the utilities automatically come out, the tax automatically comes out, the insurance automatically comes out. And it, and because the properties are new with no maintenance requests and the tenants are high quality with no particular, you know, like lateness on rent or just drama with the downstairs neighbors or whatever, mm -hmm. just let them, let them be, let them be. Very interesting. I've never heard of anyone using that strategy before where they, the, the three strike rule, that's actually really smart. Um, yeah, I mean, it's that, that's kind of one of the, the things that once you get to a certain portfolio size, because if mm -hmm. you have a property manager, you have three properties and you're constantly like adding and deleting one property and all you have with them is two or three properties. Uh, the property managers, I think probably would be a little bit less inclined to have that business flow in and out. But right. when there's dozens of properties in the portfolio, um, you know, they, that, that's a pretty good chunk of business. And I think they're willing to be a little bit more flexible with me. So I, I apologize in advance to all the property managers out there if you're, if all of your clients start adding and subtracting properties with the old three strike rule, but it works really great for me. Um, because, you know, I mean, there is quite a bit of savings involved for self-managing, uh, mm -hmm. but I put a higher priority on the time. So, you know, yes. that's, that's my personal threshold. 
three touch points and it gets reclassified to high maintenance and it goes off to the property manager. Because you're running a business as well, right? You're a realtor, you've got your realtor team, the, you know, the mobile realty group. Um, yeah, I can't imagine how you could possibly have time to deal with tenant issues as well. Well, that's it. Yeah. My, in terms of where I like to invest my time and my, my focus, it is indeed in that, in that real estate practice. Um, mm -hmm. that's, that's a much more involved, uh, role. Um, you know, I'm the CEO of the company. That's the leadership piece. There's a lot of people involved and that's, that's, that's where I really put a lot of my time into. I want my real estate holdings to be as low time commitment as, as possible for me. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, to go back to the, the multifamily and the, the houses with secondary suites, how, how are you choosing your deals? Assuming COVID doesn't blow everything up and, and, and the whole conversation changes again. Um, but how do you normally choose your deals? Because there is a variety of multifamily uh, buildings and secondary suited houses, and they just go from, you know, they can go from 350,000, say for a secondary suited house, all the way up to 470,000. What's the difference? You know what I mean? How do you choose your properties? Is it only based on price? Uh, I would say price has become less and less and less of a priority um, in the sense that, you know, I'd rather get a, a, a higher priced property that matches more of my criteria than a lower priced property that matches less of my criteria. Hmm. So, you know, in, in terms of priority of criteria, I would say my, my number one first criteria, the first, you know, gate that we have to get through before I'll continue with the deal is location. Um, if, if the location isn't in a place that I am interested in owning property, the, I, I can't even imagine, like the deal would have to be so far below market value that no sane person would sell it at that price to entice me to get outside of my target locations. Right. So, so I'd say, you know, first and foremost, uh, location is, um, is paramount because from location feeds things like tenant profile, land appreciation, um, quality of neighborhood, direction of the land value in terms of like, you know, gentrification and, and infrastructure that impacts the property value. So that location piece is, is absolutely critical. And it's, you know, it really is the one thing you can't change through renovation mm -hmm. or hard work or better property management. Like location, first and foremost, dictates almost everything else that happens with whatever property you get in that location. So that's why, why location specifically? Pardon? why location is it is it for your tenant profile is it for like the longevity of of the value of that property um uh, yeah. you mentioned gentrification it's it's all of the above you know i mean it even even in the last five years in edmonton where the market has been stalled there are certain locations that still have been increasing in property value consistently over the last five years um, mm -hmm. because they're desirable locations so desirability drives land value and, you know, I've got properties that are, you know, older, dated, in good states of repair, but not nothing sparkly new and amazing um, near the University of Alberta that will mm -hmm. fill in a heartbeat and they'll fill faster, they'll rent for more and they're more desirable um, for tenants than brand new properties that I have in other locations. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, it dictates like all it's the foundational layer that dictates a lot of the other pieces of how the investment goes. So I, you know, it, it's, I got the locations that I'm happy with and I, I won't really look at deals outside of them. The next thing I'll look at is if it's a multifamily, then we know that the, you know, the tenants dictate the net operating income and the net operating income dictates the building value. Um, you know, we can, we can talk a little more about how to value multifamily, but at, at a general point, the tenant, the tenants come with a multifamily building in right. single family residential. Um, very often they're vacant or you want them vacant, or if there's one tenant, the tenant's easy to replace. But if you're buying a 24 unit building, um, the health wellness quality of those 24 tenants is a huge, huge driver of value. Um, because on paper, you can have a lot of really crummy tenants paying really high rent. Or you can have a bunch, and that's that's an absolute like recipe for disaster, because right. because I always when I look at multifamily buildings, I don't I look at the suites as if they were vacant. So I don't just ask myself like, okay, what does the tenant look like? I also ask myself, if this tenant left, what would I have to do? And then I build that into my 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 uh, analysis model. Mm -hmm. But if the tenant, but if there, it's a bunch of really really great tenants paying really low rent, that property is a sleeping giant, and you know, with very minimal investment, 
you can add quality to that tenant experience up the service level, up the overall management level of the building, and then get those tenants' rents up. Whereas really crummy tenants and really crummy suites that are paying too high rent, um, that's the scariest type of multifamily building to buy because that high rent will pop up the net operating income, which then creates a false sense of value in the building when you know that's a very fragile house of cards that can come tumbling down if those crummy tenants start leaving and you have to start investing in the building to improve the value. Um, so multifamily, it's all like the tenants are going to be next. What's, yeah. What are the current tenants like? You know, like I'm going to go into their suites. I'm going to keep an eye out for things like unauthorized pets. I'm going to see how many dishes are kicking around on the countertops. I'm going to see if there's a, an ashtray sitting on the, you know, coffee table in the, in the living room. I'm going to see what's in the ashtray. Is it cigarettes? Is it marijuana? Um, you know, I'm going to look for indicators of lifestyle. Like creeping someone's apartment is almost like creeping their Facebook profile. Like if they've got, if they've got certain things in their apartment that are indicative of risk factors for, for tenants, um, you know, that's, that's, that's a concern or just the way that they're keeping the suite. Um, there's a phenomenon that I, that I call permit dirt, which is like, permit dirt, like permanent dirt, you know, okay. like a lot of, a lot of rookie landlords I find say, Oh yeah, you know what? They're messy, but they pay their rent, but messy translates into damage. Um, right. if somebody is, if somebody's dirty to the point where they never clean, that dirt will never come out of the carpet. It's permanent dirt. You're replacing that carpet. Mm. Or if somebody never cleans the toilet or the bathroom, porcelain is porous and that dirt becomes permanent if they just never ever clean. Um, right. Same goes for countertops. Same goes for the wood grain on the kitchen cabinets. You know, like, you know, unless things are, you don't have a suite that's made of metal. Metal is the only thing that's not porous enough to get permanent dirt. Everything else right. is textured enough or porous enough that if it doesn't get cleaned regularly, you're going to you're going to incur damage from dirtiness. So I, I'm actually very picky about messy and dirty tenants because I know the damage that 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 dirtiness can do over you know a medium term, like a couple a couple of years of a tenant never ever cleaning a place, you're not getting it clean when they move out. You're going to have to do repairs. So that's that's kind yeah, of what I'm, I'm kind for of today. picky with that too. Yeah, you have to be, you know, and again, as a, as an introductory landlord, you're like, oh, they're dirty, but you can clean it mm, to a point, to a point. Um, and uh, the, so that's, that's kind of on the multifamily side. I'd say my next criteria on the single family side is thinking about the quality of the, the space and how it's going to attract a tenant. So similar to on the multifamily side, where I think about what would happen if they leave, I think about the building and who it would attract and what, what features are going to be attractive to tenants. And just what, you know, I just put my tenant hat on, you know, if I was renting, would, would this place appeal to me? Or if I'm shopping, you know, half a dozen places, keeping the numbers out of it, um, which one of these places would I rent if it was just me making that, where would I live decision? Mm -hmm. And then, and then from there, I start cross-referencing price. I mean, the final gate is, am I getting a good deal? But, you know, I, I define a good deal as situated in the market, you know, like, the right price for a property in the West end of the city is different than the right price for a similar property in Mill woods is different than the right price for that property in Bonnie Dune. So, you know, it, is it the right price for that location? Then, okay, that's my final check mark. So, you know, it's almost like a reverse order. Like I, 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 I would have, I used to have like shiny object syndrome where it's like, Oh wow, that's an amazing price. And it doesn't match any of my other criteria, but Oh my gosh, that price is great. Right. Whereas now, because I'm really focusing on, how much of a time commitment the property is going to be and how much ongoing uh, maintenance and how many ongoing touch points the property is going to require. I reverse engineer it from that perspective, which is why I like location tenant experience. And then finally, is it a good deal are kind of my three tiers of analysis. I think you need to get away from the whole real estate investing portion and look at it as, as a business. Right. And, and that's, that's how I did this because I'm not, you know, Someone will ask me, well, why'd you pay $470,000 for that house over there when you could have got it over here for $350,000? Well, this business operates better than this business. Totally. This business has a lower vacancy, better tenant profile, less headaches, and the ROI is actually better because rents are lower. Or, you know, I might be taking a, a lighter, um, a lower ROI, but, you know, I'm able to not put as much time into it and stress into it. So, yeah, it, it, and a lot of people did 
like you said, the shiny ball syndrome where they, they'll, they'll go and look for the nicest thing. And this is an amazing property. It's going to, you know, get great tenants, but they don't think of it as a business. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Like at, when you start thinking about it as a business, you realize that business is all about profitability, but there are certain business activities that go into creating profitability. And mm -hmm. if, and you know, I almost think about translating that into like a dollar per hour where, you know, if, if this property cash flows, $500 a month, but it takes 10 hours of my time per month. That is, that's 50 bucks an hour. Okay. If this property here generates $250 a month in cash flow, but it takes 15 minutes of my time per month. Okay. That to me is a lot more exciting because, yeah. because in terms of dollar per hour, well, okay, now I just need to buy two of them and I'm making as much money over here with half an hour of time as I did over there with 10 hours. And because I'm not spending 10 hours on this property that's slowing me down, I can reinvest that time into more acquisition. You can't buy more time. Exactly. That's your most valuable asset. 100%. And, and so, you know, new investor, just getting started, you know, all gung-ho. How, how, does, how does a new investor, say in Edmonton, for example, um, how do they determine what's the right location? How do they determine what's the best um, business that they should be buying like, or, or investment type? Well, in, uh, as a little shout out to my ski trip that I just got back from, I'm going to use a ski analogy here. My advice to new investors is start on the green runs. Do not overcomplicate your first investment because if you go onto that black diamond and you wipe out and dislocate your shoulder hitting a tree, chances are you're probably not going to want to get back on the ski hill. Whereas, mm -hmm. you know, if you fall on a green run, very forgiving, you'll have, you know, you'll maybe tumble and roll, you'll pick yourself up, you'll dust yourself off, it'll be fine. So build your confidence, start simple, make sure that you get yourself dialed in, and then maybe do a blue run, maybe do a black diamond run. So let's, you know, let's talk about that in terms of some Edmonton examples. I mean, you know, Wayne, you're, you're a professional investor, you know what you're doing. You're on the black diamonds, you're on the double black diamonds, you know, you like, you're doing things like agreement for sale strategies, combining it with a burr strategy. I mean, rookie investors who are listening don't even know what those acronyms mean yet but you're, you're combining different strategies that re, that require a lot of expertise and work. So, mm -hmm. you know, you're doing like a deal where the vendor is financing the deal while simultaneously taking on a renovation project while simultaneously using creative financing. Okay. Everything I just described has way more points of error than the green circle, which is buy a really nice property in a really nice neighborhood. That's going to appeal to really nice tenants and then rent it out to those really nice tenants and then just chill out. Yeah. You do that. You have a great year. The rent shows up on time every single month. You make your 250 bucks a month in cash flow. You don't have any drama. You don't have any maintenance. You build a great relationship with your tenants where you're like, wow, is this my tenant or is this my friend? I've got a great customer service thing going. And then pick something that is more complex mm -hmm. and then add a layer of complexity. You know, I mean, there are some superstar investors who are like, I already 10 properties this year. Okay. Still make your first one a green circle. Just you know, instead of doing your blue square a year from now, you're doing your blue square two months from now. But mm -hmm. there's like, there, there's definitely that a type entrepreneurial ego involved with this business uh, for a lot of people, which, you know, great, but it really, really does serve you to slow it down, make the first one as easy and as simple as possible to get comfortable with all of the, the lingo get comfortable with your power team, get comfortable with business process, develop your filing system, develop your tenant communication system. And then, you know, I mean, like a, a, a fall, an easy fall in a green circle. It's like, okay, so you're, you're young professional tenants renting your brand new place, um, went on vacation and for, you know, for whatever reason, the rental payment didn't get through. And so the rent is four days late. Ooh, okay. That's, that's what a fall in a green circle looks like in real estate terms. Mm -hmm. Whereas let's talk about your burr strategy, you know, like you've like a, a fall on a black diamond would be you're negotiating with this agreement for sale vendor. You've already got your contractors lined up. You've already got your start date for your project lined up. You've got a very tight window of time to do this project in three months. And now there's a, the, the vendor gets cold feet. They delay your project by a month because you've used a creative financing strategy. The carrying cost of that month is a lot higher and you know, it's, and, and the completion date of your project is now pushing you out of the spring rental window into yeah, the yeah. fall rental window. I mean, 
for someone who's a rookie investor, everything I just talked about might as well have been a different language because I, you know, I was using a lot of industry lingo and a lot of different acronyms, right? So for the rookie investor, like keep it simple and then get more complicated. Don't, don't think that just because it's cool and sexy that experienced professional investors are doing these complicated things that's, that's the best way to get started. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know what, I really want to add one more layer on your skiing example is that, you know, it's, it, I think it's very important to stay on those green runs. Actually, full disclosure, I've never skied in my life. <laughs> but back to my story, I think it's really important, like you said, to build up from the green to the blue to the black diamonds. And don't worry about the sponsorships and the endorsements on the green run. Start getting yourself up and make your way up and then start looking for sponsorships and endorsements and that kind of stuff. Don't start bringing in JV money on your first deal unless you are an expert because I see a lot of people, you know, those little falls are pretty substantial when you're bringing in, you know, uh, Mountain Dew because Mountain Dew is going to be wondering what the heck's going on when you slipped up. So, um, I think well, yeah, it's really important. Very public fall with the spotlight mm -hmm. on you. That sponsor is going to pull the sponsorship, and then you know you kill the relationship with a joint venture partner. Exactly. You know this as well as I do. I have I have joint venture partners who have been with me my entire career. Where we have a win, we reinvest the money. We have a win, we reinvest the money. They're bragging to their friends at dinner party. Now their friend wants to do a deal with me. Yeah. It's just like it snowballs quickly when you are at the when it's the right time to start bringing in joint venture partners, and you do a great job. But if you if you if things go sideways uh, especially if it's you know an avoidable mistake because you were a rookie and you didn't know that you were making the mistake until it cost the money that it cost mm -hmm. um you know you lose like one joint venture partner isn't is very rarely one joint venture partner if you do a good job it's repeat business and referral business because if you're making someone money the one thing people like bragging about is is the money they made on a cool deal and then yeah. their friends yeah. want in on it so you know, you gotta, you're, you're absolutely right. Like don't bring in the joint ventures until you're actually ready and you feel like you've got the competency to do it. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of ways to get started in real estate, you know, to build up that, that, that experience. I mean, you can, you know, if you have an old place that uh, you used to own and you're buying a new place and you're moving into it, you can rent out the, the previous one and kind of build up that experience. You can start doing wholesales, you know what I mean? To kind of get more accustomed with the uh, the market and, and the values and, and that kind of stuff. So that's, um, you know, I see a lot of people just kind of jump right into finding a joint venture partner on the first property. And uh, it's, I kind of feel bad for the joint venture partner. You know what I mean? That's a lot of money. That's, that's someone's savings, $60,000, Um But uh, let's, let's talk a little bit, a bit about mobile. Um, you know, I, I couldn't come up with a very good segue, unfortunately, but you know, when choosing good properties, when, when, when trying to build a team, um, of, of, of professionals who you can rely on so that you don't slip up, um, you know, I think it's super important to have a professional who actually has investments, who actually is invested in real estate. And that's one of the cool things I liked about the mobile realty group is because you guys all have investment properties, right? Yeah. And I, my first couple of properties, um, you know, I bought with, you know, uh, a referral from someone at work and it, it didn't work out very well. You know, like that's, let's talk about rookie mistakes. I bought a suite of property that wasn't legal. I didn't know any different, but I was relying on that person's expertise um, and, and I got burnt. So now I'm kind of stuck with it. So, you know, how in, it's kind of a silly question, but how important do you think it is to have, you know, a realtor or a professional that actually has investment properties? Well, that's, that's an easy lob. So I don't mind hitting that one out of the park. <laughs> thanks for the, <laughs> thanks. Thanks for the compliment disguised as a question, Wayne. I appreciate it. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. But you know what? I, that, that is a feature of our team. Every, every single one of the senior agent realtors on our team owns their own portfolio of investment properties. Mm. That's, that's an important part of our, our business um, model. It's part of our corporate culture. And, you know, I mean, I encourage all the agents to pursue their own JVs and, you know, just share some of the knowledge that I have with them when they're on the team, when they're, you know, creating their side deals. And I want them to do it because the better they are and the more they understand what it's like to be an investor, the mm. more they can speak as a, you know, as someone that's on the same level with their clients. So, you know, I mean, I, I joke because it is a loaded question. Like how important yeah. do, do I think that, um, you know, the realtor that you're using for investment properties actually has invested themselves? Well, I think it's so important that it's part of my hiring strategy. 
You know, I mean, like I only want to work with people uh, on my team who know how to do it. Like, I mean, just to, just to use a real easy example, like I would never hire a fat personal trainer. Not going to do it. You know, it's no different with your investment focused realtor. Like, wait, how many investment properties do you own? How many deals have you done? You know, like you gotta, you gotta be with someone that knows what it feels like to have a hard conversation with a tenant or mm -hmm. someone who has dealt with a contractor with a, with a delayed timeline and has had those conversations you want, but you also want to deal with somebody who's inspirational. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty cool to talk to somebody who has a good chunk of their lifestyle supported by their investment properties and to know that like, Hey, if this person can do it, I can do it. We're all regular people. We mm -hmm. just followed a system and consistently with follow through built a portfolio, one property at a time. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, you know, from a business perspective, it's just an extra layer of value that you guys can add as well. Right. I mean, you're, you're not responsible to kind of tell me what kind of property or to kind of help guide me, you know, you're, well, I mean, you are in a sense, but you know, it's an extra layer of be like, Hey, you know, I don't think you should, I think you should focus on this neighborhood because this neighborhood has a better tenant profile. Just it's for me as an example, that, that bad story I gave you. I mean, I could have dodged a bullet there had I had a real estate professional right. who actually could have told me that. Um, and obviously one extra layer is, is you guys started the mobile mastermind as well, which is freaking amazing. Um, just an extra layer of value that people can go every month and actually learn. Totally. Well, you know, I mean, really at the end of the day, I'll call a spade a spade. We're all real estate nerds. Mm -hmm. And so we love getting together and talking about real estate and, uh, you know, we're, we're all about togetherness. So the more of our real estate friends we can get together to talk about real estate every month, the happier we are. So it's just, it's just a great opportunity once a month to get real estate people together to talk real estate because, you know, I'm, I'm lucky in the sense that I'm immersed in an environment with really intent real estate people every single day. That's the mobile team. But I also totally appreciate that the average investor, you know, if your spouse is bought in, that's huge. But a lot of people, it's them or them and their spouse doing their thing in real estate and having those networking events, um, you know, like Mogul Mastermind. There's so many good ones at Edmonton too. You know, there's the Mogul Mastermind, there's Rain, there's Area, there's the Collaborate Meetup. Um, I think uh, there's a couple of smaller meetups that are organized. Like when, when that's your only time to talk to people who are doing real estate in a week or in a month, you got to do it because you know, the chatter of people at work or in your family or in your friend group who aren't actively building that real estate business, you know, that can be distracting. And so it's really good to connect with your fellow investors and just be on the same page with some people. You know, it's, it's really all about that sense of community. And I, you know, I, I love hearing about when people go to multiple meetups because it's like, get into it. If you want to be you know, you're, you're, you're really influenced by the crowd you run with. So the more you run with the real estate investor crowd, the more successful you're going to be as a real estate investor. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about your motto with mobile live well and, and yeah. where that all stemmed from? Yeah, totally. So, you know, we, when we developed the, the mobile brand, we really did a lot of thought process on like what our, what our core values are, what our, what our personal philosophy is. And um, one of the things that we've evolved our branding into is it's actually, we now say work hard, play hard, live well. So really, to really add a little more clarity into what that's all about. Right. And so part of my business ethic is, you know, I always think that I love the phrase work hard, play hard, but I'm always very cognizant of the fact that work hard comes first, play hard comes second. Right. And so it's, it's all about putting in the work, putting in the focus to get the success and then celebrating it by playing hard. You know, all work and no play is not, not the lifestyle I want. And it's not the lifestyle I want my staff to have. It's not the lifestyle I want my clients to have. You know, I really think that that, that hard work is there for a reason. And that reason is playing the way that you want to play. And that ultimately dictates, you know, live well. Yeah. If you're, if you're in, if you're in harmony between working hard and, and playing hard, you really are, you really are living well. Um, I'm not, I'm not a subscriber to the belief that like, okay, we're going to sacrifice the next five years with really hard work to get to this light at the end of the tunnel, which is sitting on a beach. You know, it's real estate, re becoming a real estate investor isn't a light switch. It's a dimmer switch where, you know, every property you buy, your lifestyle changes a little bit. And so you have to really appreciate the journey along the way, which is what living well is all about is mm -hmm. adding a property, adjusting your lifestyle, adding a property, adjusting your lifestyle. 
until you know you're at a at a tipping point where it's a lot more about the real estate than it is about your previous lifestyle or whatever your career was um you know and, and it also applies to our homeowners it's it's a lifestyle choice your home is your sanctuary it really dictates the way that you live your life you know i mean even something as simple as ensuite versus not ensuite somebody who has an ensuite lives day-to-day life differently than somebody that doesn't have an ensuite so you know, it's like really finding out what priorities are and then picking a space that, cre- that helps you create a lifestyle that you're really, really happy with or building a portfolio in a way that serves your lifestyle day to day. Because being an investor is a day to day thing. It's not like five years of hard work, question mark, nebulous, whatever, and then a clear vision of a beach. Like really yeah. think about what does your every single day look like? Because if, if you're not flourishing with happiness every single day, the the journey to get to where it is that you think you want to go is going to take a heck of a lot longer because you're not going to want to be on the journey. That's, and that's kind of like my, my personal goal is not so much to be on a beach or to have a certain amount of money. It's my personal goal is to, is to wake up every morning and actually want to wake up. You know what I yeah. mean? And that could, I could be doing anything. I could be sweeping a floor, but if I want to wake up and sleep before, there's a reason to wake up. every morning, And that's what I'm working on achieving. Um, and you, and you actually sent me a, an underhand now, a nice little lob, because you know you work hard, play hard, and, and not going for five hard, five years hard, you know, to get to the beach. You've implemented something really cool that I really like, that I would like to implement in the future, is the mini vacations. And I've heard you talk about it a few times, but I've never actually heard your full story on that, on what that all means and how you, how you do those. Yeah, it's it's actually, I mean, I didn't invent it. I borrowed it from a book that had a huge influence on me, which is uh, the book Four Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. Mm. And he talks about he talks about many retirements in that book. And basically what he says is, you know, and that, that influenced the, the live well philosophy is that a lot of people have the thought process that it's 35 years of grind to get to this thing called retirement, which is the light at the end of the tunnel. Mm-hmm. And then what? Um, you know, people die when they retire because they stop moving. People get bored when they retire. They go crazy when they retire. They, you know, they retire for a year and then pick up a new career or they pick up something else because they've conditioned themselves for 35 years to just be busy all the time. So, you know, one of his philosophies is like earn mini retirements, sprinkle that, sprinkle that 30 year retirement throughout your entire life so that you can appreciate what retirement feels like when you have different, different levels of mobility, different age, um, different interests, you know, and like the kind of stuff that I did in my mini retirement when I was 25 was different than my mini retirement when I was 30. And it's going to be different than my next mini retirement because mm-hmm. we all know as you age, your, your interests change. That's just part of growing up. So, you know, it's, it's pretty cool to have a retirement style experience in your thirties because what I'm, what I want to do in my thirties is going to be different than what I would do if I had a retirement in my sixties, seventies, eighties, whatever. Yeah. So, so I, I really going to be able to ski when you're in your seventies and eighties. Yeah. <laughs> well, not nearly as fast. That's for darn sure. You know, I, I don't think I'll be doing double black diamonds when I'm 70. I'll, I'll be out there, you know, God willing, but um, yeah. the way that I'm going to ski when I'm 70 is not the way that I ski right now. So I want to get some, I want to get some skiing in now while my body can do what it can do at age, at age 37. So, Absolutely. so yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of the thought process is like, really thinking about like taking work hard, play hard and not making it a day to day thing or a week to week thing. But when you can start thinking big picture and it's a quarter to quarter thing or a year to year thing, it's like, okay, what does working hard for the next 24 months look like? So I can have a six month mini retirement. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, what, what, what do I really want in retirement? Because some people want full off switch in retirement. Some people want, to go from an eight hour day to a one hour day to just check in and, you know, be mentally engaged with your business. I mean, it's tough to build a real estate business if you don't like real estate. That's, uh, you know, it's, it seems like an obvious statement, but some people are like, they see it as a vehicle to the light at the end of the tunnel of financial freedom, even though they just aren't into real estate, like the actual day to day of being a real estate investor. It's like, okay, here's the checklist of things you need to do to be a real estate investor. Well, I don't like that stuff but I heard it gets me rich. Like, well, other stuff will get you rich. Do something else instead. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? Um, so, you know, that's, that's, that's kind of what it was. So my last mini retirement, I spent an entire ski season in Whistler. And, um, you know, I mean, my day to day was on days where the snow was good. 
that was just like you know if there was if there was like a foot of fresh snow that was it was like off switch like you gotta you gotta take advantage of those days because they're they're rare enough that you gotta treat them right but for the average day you know i would get up um check email for an hour call my team make sure everything was all good have a little breakfast head to the hill ski for part of the day and depending on how good the snow was if it was a great day i'd probably go right till the end of the day if it was only so-so, I'd probably come down, have lunch, do a little bit of extra work, um, yeah. you know, a couple more hours, and then pursue some leisure activities in the evening. So, nice. it, it, yeah, I mean, I was still probably involved for eight-ish to ten-ish hours a week with, uh, with business in Edmonton. But, I mean, for the most part, like, I skied 120-ish days, 110-ish days. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I, I kind of wish I had kept count because it would be – It'd be kind of cool to know the exact amount of, of days to the day yeah. for, the, for the sake of the story, but I, w- I wasn't really paying attention. I just know it was a lot. And it that was wasn't great. the point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Counting, counting the days on the mountain wasn't really the point, but yeah, so that's, uh, that, that's just a, another extension of that work hard, play hard philosophy is that it's, it's not as hard as you think it is once you ask yourself, well, what would I have to do to make this mini retirement happen? Yeah. And what, what, what would I, what would I have to invest? Um, you know, for example, like I invested six months of lower productivity as a realtor. Okay. Am I okay with that? You know, like it's easy to get so entrenched in your belief system that it's like, if I lose six months of peak revenue as a realtor, Oh my gosh, the world's going to end. Like, mm-hmm. Or won't it, you know, like, and then what decisions do I have to make to make my lifestyle work with a reduced, you know, revenue amount or income load? Like, okay, well, this, this revenue goes towards expenses. So then you look at the expenses and think like, okay, what do I really need? You know, like I know lots of people who've been on many retirements where they go a place where they don't need a car. Okay. Sell your car. Great. The car payment, the insurance, the maintenance, all that disappears while you're on mini retirement. Great. Um, you know, like the cost of living, if you go on a mini retirement to a place that's less expensive than North America, okay, well, you're $2,500 a month. I'm just picking them out of the air, but like yeah. mortgage taxes, insurance, uh, you, you rent your place out and then you adjust to a place that costs $500 a month to live because you're into tropical places. I mean, Whistler was not that price point, but just as an example. So, you know, it's, it's it, a lot of people uh, like think about the business question from a a revenue perspective, like how do I boost revenue? How do I boost revenue? How do I boost revenue? And revenue is like, you know, is, is in sports, it's like offense, you know, you're the more revenue you have, the more offense you have, but defense is lowering expenses. And you know what they say, defense wins championships. So the, the key to having some of these experiences and the key to making your business more successful is often lies in the expenses column more so than the revenue column. Mm -hmm. And, and I actually did a presentation at, at one of your mobile masterminds a little while ago that kind of revolved all around this. And it was inspired by your mini retirements and the four hour work week as well. Because, you know, just like you, you know, um, and you don't have kids yet, but um, you want to be able to go and ski, you know, at a certain age while you still can. And, and for me as, as a father, my example, I mean, I want to be able to spend time with my daughter uninterrupted, you know, while she's still young. I could go hard for 10 years, but she'll be 14. She's not going to want to spend any time with me. So, you know, that's, that's it. You know, kids get, kids get to a point where they're too cool for, for mom and dad. Mm-hmm. So you really, you really want to make sure that you have that precious time with them where they, they think you're a rock star and they don't think you're a nerd. Yeah, exactly. So that's, that's kind of where I, you know, and every day it kind of evolves and, it, and I adapt, um, you know, what exactly this is going to look like. But, you know, I, I too, I want to get to a point where I can work really hard and then take some time off and give full dedication and, and attention to, you know, the family and then kind of go back. And, it, and I think it's a good balance for me too. It's like you said, that eight type personality, you know, we, we just want to go, we, you know, we want it done our way. Um, and, and we have that natural urge for growth, right? I don't think that I could give up one or the other. I think that there's, I need to have, you're the same way. Yeah. Well, and I'm just going to riff off of a really, really wise point that you just made. You know, people hear mini retirement, they hear James and Whistler and they're like, Ooh, do I want to go backpacking through Europe? Do I want to go, um, you know, do I want to go sit on a beach? Like the beaches, I, I don't know why people, I guess probably because our winters are so rough. Everybody in Edmonton has these beach dreams, but I don't know. 
anyways, but like, I didn't like, it's not, that's not what a mini retirement is. A mini retirement is like doing your thing. So like a mini retirement for you, just like you said, like your priority is spending time with your daughter when you're young. So like your mini retirement could be in Edmonton, but with, you know, four hours or five hours of work per week so that you can mm -hmm. just hang out with your daughter all day doing all kinds of fun activities. You don't need to go to a place. The no, place I just like to drive her to school every day. I think it'd be great to, you know, take that half an hour drive and drive her to school every day and pick her totally. up. Or like be, be the dad that gets to come on all the field trips, you know, mm -hmm. like, you know, the, I mean, I know schools, they, they're looking for those volunteers or maybe you get to coach the sports team or whatever, just having the time to do your thing. You know, that's, mm -hmm. that's really what the mini retirement is all about. It's not a, it's not a place necessarily. It's different for everyone, right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I think that's, that's one thing that is worth the time for a lot of people is just understanding what your thing is because yeah. it's, it's easy to get caught up in somebody else's thing. You know, if, 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 for example, like a fancy, like fancy cars, like I'm not a car guy, but I know a lot of people who are just like, they are obsessed with getting the car of their dreams. And I'm like, man, the car of my dreams is the feet attached to my legs. Like I hate driving. My, mm -hmm. my ideal day is like living in a walkable city where I don't need to drive a car, you know? So it's just like, know yourself and know what, what works for you. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is a perfect point to, uh, to kind of end the interview awesome. <laughs> because I think that's the most important. I think if we can leave on that, I think that's, you know, some people are going to get a lot of values from that too. You know, um, so, you know, before we go, um, you know, most people know who you are, but if for anyone who doesn't know who you are and, and they want to reach out to you or find your stuff or interested in the mobile mastermind, um, how do they find it? Yeah, let's keep it simple and just go with the, the website, M-O-G-U-L mogul, R-G, which stands for realtygroup.com. If you can put a link in your description or whatever, go to the website and that'll be your portal to accessing us everywhere else. We're, uh, we're huge marketers, so we're online everywhere that you think you can possibly find us, you can find us. So even if you Google it, the, the hits will be, will be us. So keep in touch, um, you know, to all of you listening and I hope you guys enjoyed the interview. I mean, I love Wade's podcast, so I just want to end with gratitude. Like it's cool to finally get to be a guest on this, uh, on this awesome podcast. And I hope everybody enjoys hearing Wayne and I shoot the breeze. <laughs> Thanks so much, James. It's uh, the feeling is very mutual. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, man. All right. Have a great one. Yeah, you too.